Hello, 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 and welcome to the next episode of the Nano Gang. And I've missed the last. I've been really bad. I've been I've been on roofs all week, fixing roofs that are badly constructed, and I am so completely dead tired that I'm not even all that coherent. But I am still J. Daniel Sawyer, and with me is Kitty Nakian and. Yeah, Carragher. Hi, everybody. I knew that you were here somewhere. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we misplaced Gail. So I, I guess Aww. I'm good. Uh, let's do check-in. I'm two days behind on check-in, but so is Gail, so it works out. <laughs> Kitty, uh, start Yes, off. that's true. That's- what, 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 what is... Oh, how are things with you? You're going to have to wait. I am not ready for this. Uh, I oh, should no. tell you something about how my writing I've done today that I don't even have Scrivener open yet. <laughs> so hold on. We'll start with Kitty and her uh, her grab bag of business tasks. I am leaning in hard on editing and mm-hmm. I am at like 170 pages. Okay. Cool. Have you gotten any of the compliance or marketing stuff yet? Not in the last couple of days. Okay. How about you, Gail? Where are you? How are you at? All that sort of stuff. Uh, I am currently, my current total is 12,776. Hey, I'm gaining on you just a little bit. Well, this is to be expected. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've, been, I've been lucky to make 1,000 a day, but I am uh, now at 69.52. So my protagonist is now awake and has had a toe amputated and is about to tell the story of how he wound up in the snowbank. So... Excellent. Is there a word uh, for this style of narration where it's like sitting around a fire and telling it in the past kind of deal? You know, in in the way that we have the word epistolary for for, a letter back and forth. Is there a word for this? I'm sure there is. I just don't know. There there should be if there isn't because it's a very old way of doing things. Um, maybe yeah, it, this sort of ties to an oral tradition or something. Yeah. The the flashback narrative. Yeah, a retrospective narrative. I don't know if that works, but yeah. Anyway, well, I just, just throw it out there. If anyone out there knows the word, please tell us. It it sounds like we're talking yeah, about a frame story, but a specific style of frame story. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, like uh, the Arabian Nights. But. And the Odyssey, so many of them are like that. Okay, well, mm-hmm. hey, we got uh, we got questions today. Uh, we have questions for all three hey. of us. I, I'll, I'll try to answer mine last, but if I may not have enough me here. But uh, we'll start with the question for Gail. This is from okay, Nicole. I'm ready. This is from Nicole, who actually found this show through meeting you at a book signing in Ohio, according to her early questions that she sent out. <laughs> you must have been Ohio? Yeah, the Nano Gang or something. I don't know if the book signing was in Ohio. It's been years since yeah. I've been to Ohio. That must have been a very long time ago. I feel like N- Nicole has asked questions on um, some of my lives as well. I think ah, it's the same Nicole. It's probably uh, the same Nicole. But I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah, All right, I'm for, ready. Yeah, she's been here for about a year. Um, Didn't she come in last Nano? Isn't that how she like found the podcast? That's it. Yep. But, yep. Cool. So she would have probably yeah. gotten that from your newsletter. Yeah, or something like that. Anyway. All right. Hi, Nicole. Uh, <laughs> Nicole says, 
Super excited about the series. I enjoyed your steampunk, but you're also a great sci-fi writer. Crud Rat and The Fifth Gender, both very intriguing, as well as fun. What challenges has this new series presented? Have you seen a similar pattern as you've written another, as you've written other series or are there new challenges that it brings? Um, Well, I think I'm going to parlay. I think we'll probably get to some of the challenges with this particular series as we go along, but because I was just thinking about it and it's something that even your uh, soporific brain might be able to weigh in on. And certainly Kitty's brain could weigh in on from an editorial perspective is one of the things I am noticing is the difference between writing uh, steampunk as I wrote it and sci-fi, um, mm. which it's been so long since I've written sci-fi of this style, like, you know, kind of traditional series sci-fi that, that I, I, I just thought about it recently. So the way I write steampunk is more alt history than most. And I also go in assuming people know Victorian history. So I'll just like casually use terms and dis- and, yep. and very loosely describe settings. Um, but with steampunk, you're building. Exactly. And also very kind of brief descriptively, which is interesting from someone who writes like parodies of Dickensian <laughs> stuff, because you know those were very high descriptive, but I'm right. pretty, pretty low descriptive. But I'm noticing with this one, also, this is more serious. So I don't lean in, into comedy as much as, as I have done in the past, that my biggest challenge is incorporating world building. Mm. Um, so like, because part of the whole kind of discovery arc, I've talked about the fact that I, I believe almost all commercial genre fiction has a myst- mystery element, mm-hmm. and that in a lot, of, yep. a lot of yep. fantasy and sci-fi, that mystery element is uncovering things about the universe. So yep. uncovering things about the magical system or your place in that system as a prophecy or something like that, yep. or uncovering things about the alien race you've encountered, what they want from humans, that sort of a thing. Yep. And so... In this book, that's part of the arc is like the every in every book in the series, you, the reader and the main character both learn more about these aliens that are kind of dominating this entertainment industry and what those aliens want, what they're using the industry for, that sort of a thing. But in this book, the third one, we finally visit the alien planet. And I'm at that juncture right now where I'm writing this scene. And it's a lot of world building information to transmit all at once and like picking and choosing which aspects I transmit is really, really challenging for me because there are things that I naturally get really excited about and gravitate towards like foodways, mm-hmm. but like, I'm not going to spend three paragraphs explaining how cave dwellers managed to grow food on an alien planet <laughs> and how that has to do with bioluminescent veiled mushrooms and like mm, tubular, like, you know, root growths that like allow for light and air to eat, like stuff like that, you know, like yep. then you have to go into a cave system of like, well, how's their vegetative matter that support fungi and all this sort of stuff. And I'm just like, Look, I just have to hand hand wavy wavy that part, which is actually the part I really, really love and would love to like spend pages <laughs> talking about. But it's not germane to the plot. Right. So instead, I, and I also really enjoy writing the, the aliens and how their socialization and culture works. And so that's the bit that I, I actually do have to talk about because that's germane to the plot. But it's just bad. I, I, I suppose I'm just talking about this to talk about the fact that like, no matter what you do, if you are writing something that really ties to the gothics in the nature of like setting up and character and this mystery element, 
there are going to be points in time where you you have to describe large chunks of things like you have to convey information and so it's the old info dump quandary of like how do you transmit like in a in a way that your audience will absorb it but also enjoy it as an entertainment experience which is what the book should be and so that's the challenge for me and for me personally on my path as a writer that's more of a challenge in sci-fi for me than it is when i'm writing steampunk or the contemporary like the san andreas stuff because both of those two are more nested in reality Mm -hmm. so i don't have to describe as much but now suddenly i'm like yeah i gotta describe these and i gotta describe them not using metaphors that are modern day earth-based oh boy that's so much fun because yeah because you can't say he walked like a penguin and your character has never seen there's no penguins Exactly. You can't, I can't say they're like, you know, human sized potatoes growing in the ceiling of the caves because yep. potatoes is not something my main character knows anything about. So. Yep. Those limitations are always a lot of fun for me. When I'm doing science fiction, weirdly, the medium future and far future science fiction I've done is much easier on that score because the the environments are pretty much taken for granted. If you're not on earth, you're in a tin can somewhere and you can, there's all sorts of stuff that can happen in the tin can. But the fact that you've got a wall between you and vacuum, it means you're going to be highly technologically dependent and that the, the, the mental map that everybody's got is going to be geared towards uh, closed system ecology and stuff like that. And so because I love that kind of story and read a lot of that kind of story, I find that kind of world building to be pretty easy, more difficult on the social aspect because you've got everything's a pressure cooker in one way or another, but easy on the world building aspect. This one I'm doing now where the characters are largely people who have lived through or who are living through the transition from one age of civilization to another. That's interesting. And it's been a real challenge. I've got, I've pulled up a paragraph here from this because this is the kind of way that I've found that I'm solving that world building problem. The character in question is trying to get some Tylenol to reduce his son's fever. And for the first time in the narrative, he uses Tylenol instead of acetaminophen. And he says, Tylenol, there was a word he hadn't heard in a long time. He wondered if the company still existed, if there were still white plastic bottles filled to bursting and wrapped with the red label, maybe somewhere out east where they could pretend nothing had really changed in the last 10 years. Here, everything was broken down into small packages. It was the only way the stores could make enough to survive. They'd do it with family-sized breakfast cereal if anyone sold cereal anymore. After everything that had happened in the last 10 years... He found that the thing he missed most were all those stupid, colorful labels that gave everything a sense of self and occasion. Sure, they just distinguished one version of a something from another, identical version of that same something. But once, not all that long ago, the world was a place where something as stupid as a label could make you do one thing instead of another, where your life was different depending on whether you preferred to look at red, blue, green, or yellow in your medicine cabinet, where everything came with labels filled with words and pictures, where there was such plenty that labels seemed important. They'd never meant anything, but they had meant everything. So this is interesting because what you what you do is 
you're linking the familiar for mm -hmm. the reader in a yep. way, right? And so I've used that technique as well, where anything that comes from like old earth or earth core, Hugh core, it's called different things in different parts of my galaxy, um, is considered relatively antiquated and backwards. Like mm -hmm. it, it's original earth is like the Western spiral arm of the galaxy. It's kind of like mm -hmm. the West end or something <laughs> like, yeah. um, and so it's called ancient or old fashioned often. And so I will use those sort of those words to, and then, and that will allow me to both kind of reference the past or, diff, or of, of human history for the reader as a familiarity point, but also do what you did, which is insult it for its, mm -hmm. you know, as, as a piece of like social commentary. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I thought, so yes, leaning into the familiar and like and an example I can give is the scene I, I just wrote and will be working on as I start today, which is encountering these aliens for the first time. There is a sort of, I'm not going to say which aliens they are, because that would be a big gimme for the whole book. But the female of the species, the breeder females are like very, very large, and they ended up, they end up sort of stuck in place. So they're very like non-human. They're very, they're, they're, they're more humanoid. They're just, yeah, I was thinking more just, aliens, but uh, I was going to say, you don't like horror films. So you haven't seen the alien movies probably. But, yeah, I've seen the first oh, one, I think, maybe the okay. second one. But yeah, I don't like them. Anyway, so they're these sort of giantesses, and they're very weird and surreal, and it's a very strange experience. But the person who's describing this to my main character is is another human humanoid, or another sapien, they're called in the books, which is more similar to the original Earth um, physicality. Mm. and uh, But he used to live with them, and so they're perfectly normal to him. And so my character's like, what are they doing? Because there's like one queen and a bunch of others, like, like kind of sitting on top of her in a big pile. And he's like, I don't understand the <laughs> dynamic. And, and the, uh, the other human character just turns to him and says, well, they're having a big gossip session. Like they're just cuddling <laughs> and gossiping. you know. <laughs> and, and that's like my version of taking like the familiar to mm -hmm. anchor the readers in, in this like alien context. Yep. Making the strange familiar but it, but, and making the familiar strange. Yeah, but both of the, the, the but that still is we both are still info dumping, which is yep. just to say that there comes a point where you're gonna have to use three to six to eight sentences, you know, to a full full last paragraph to to actually relay information in some way or another. I'll often do that kind of info dumping and then add humor, like I did. Yep. Where I was yeah, like, the, I'm describing the, the three, this very the, yeah, the, the three great techniques for info dumping are adding humor, adding suspense, which is very much the same technique with a slightly different twist, and using the um, and telling a story with the info dump. So it's a little story within a story. And dialoguing. Mm -hmm. If you can, yeah. if you can break up that big paragraph of descriptive text. Mm -hmm with some kind of dialogue or action, you know, that relays the information in a way that you're like, Oh, I'm never going to forget that. Like, you know, if the, mm -hmm. if the thing that needs to be described becomes a plot point, then people are not going to forget it. Especially mm -hmm. if you like dole that out immediately. If you, like, if you intend to make it a plot point later on in the book, then you need to spend more attention on it earlier on in the book. Yeah. So it sticks in your reader's brains. Otherwise they're going to feel tricked. If, if you just yeah. do a, like a side mention of something, you know, so you know, it is, there is a sort of delicacy to this kind of information dropping. Mm -hmm. Yep.
Okay, so now we have a question for Kitty. Um, Kitty Nicole says, how do you order your day with tasks? Do you have a certain time that your brain works with certain assignments? If you had a choice and your day job didn't dictate time or order, how would you do things? Um, so the first part of that question is I, I have, I ha do have a day job and I work um, pretty normal hours except time shifted slightly because my, um, the main office for my job is in another time zone. Um, and so I work a normal eight hour shift um, and occasionally over time when I can, when I can squeeze it in because extra money. Um, and then I take a couple of hours to do outdoor and household tasks while, the, while we still have light. In the and winter, that's important because we're very, very far north. Yeah. And then I will do, I guess, the brain-intensive type of AWP work, like mm -hmm. editing and reviewing and blah, blah, blah. And then I'll end the day with um, routine paperwork and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and how would you do it if you didn't have a day job that was uh, um, ruling your time? I would probably switch up office and editing and art tasks a little bit more and maybe do chunks. I haven't had that luxury of actually having the whole day to myself to decide such things for a long time. No, about so, a year and a half. Year and a half year and a half ago you were we were doing things all in house. Right, but I wasn't managing my time very well at the time. Right. And True. So if I had the time I would probably experiment. <laughs> to see what works because I don't know. That's what I was going to say. Like I highly recommend, because I think we also change like our brain patterns and when our high heightened awareness patterns are best, like changes as we get older and over time. Like, I've I noticed that too. Yeah. Trying to figure out when your brain is at its peak in the course of a 24 hour period mm -hmm. and assigning that time lot, the thing you want to accomplish the most. And I would argue that if what you want is to be a fiction author, that should be your fiction writing time. Yeah. And pay um, attention to when you're emotionally inhibited versus critically mm -hmm. sharp at the same time, because some people are creatively sharp when, they're, when their inhibitions are very low, but they can do like uh, analysis and rational thinking and editorial stuff at a different point in the day because their inhibitions yeah. are high. So their creative mind isn't going crazy with new ideas. Yeah. Or you're angsty. Like I am not a morning person and I'm very kind of like aggro and grumpy in the morning. But that doesn't mean I'm not awake. <laughs> just, just, uh, sorry. Sorry. Just brings back memories. All of yeah, all I'm saying is that doesn't mean that I'm not a, like, well, Dan has experienced this at like a New Year's or whatever, when everyone's mm -hmm. gotten tiny sleep. I'm still the person who gets up, cleans and starts cooking for everybody first thing in the morning because like it's I'm grumpy about it. But I still like have to feed. I have to I'm compelled to feed people and make sure everybody is like happy and satisfied and well fed. And, and, and like it's one more, of my more favorite to the things. Point, if, as opposed to like being on the convention circuit with you when, mm, when oh yeah it, when you're when you're hosting a multi-day party, you're aggro and grumpy in the morning, but it goes away pretty quick as you get to doing your thing. Yeah. 
Whereas with conventions, yeah, when, your, to, when your first panel isn't yeah. till one in the afternoon, you wander around like grumble, grumble, grumble. Oh, hi, I'm Gail Carrier, asshole. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it is. There's a reason I have a hard and fast rule, which is like, do not schedule me on a panel before 10 o'clock in the morning and mm -hmm. 11 o'clock in some parts of the world. And that's not because I can't participate on a panel. It's because I am too mean. <laughs> if you put me on a panel early in the morning. Um, it's so funny. Oh. But that, but, but all that to say doesn't mean I can't accomplish things in the morning. So like, I tend to do all my business stuff. I'm just not allowed to actually send any emails. Um, <laughs> I can write them, can't send them. Uh huh. I can send emails until the afternoon. Sometimes I will write an email the night before and then review it. So I'll write mm -hmm. it when I'm in a pleasant headspace and then review it when I'm in a grumpy headspace. And I'll be like, okay. But I do need to be. Most emails, business emails, should have gone through both of those uh, mm -hmm. criteria first. Um, but yeah, so like to answer the question, which wasn't asked to me, it was asked to Kitty, but I do business stuff in the mornings for this exact reason and do my writing when I find my brain is the most active, which is right about now. Mm -hmm. um, and then I tend to do fun stuff and like some social media and things like that in the in the evenings. That's how like my day... But, but I, you know, have morphed that and it's changed. And if I'm on vacation or on a writing retreat, it can change again, you know, so, and, and, and I, to answer the question that was asked to Kitty, there's a part of me that would, I think, largely prefer it if, if the world were arranged in such a way, which is never going to happen, that I could do no email and no business four days a week. And I could just do everything one day, whether that was like, Wednesday or Monday or whatever it is, if I could actually just take care of all of my business all day in one day, for me, that would be the most ideal. That's and then it then, seems like a state worth aspiring to, even if you never get there the whole way, you could make some progress in that direction. Well, I do like I do do all business on Mondays and I try to take care of everything. But like, you know, speaking from the 12 years in as a as a writer, you know, there's oh, like, yeah. There's a legal battle that I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, I can't wait to, to make a decision on, yep. you know, whether I'm suing somebody or not, you know, so, and, but, yeah. and you think, oh, well, how many times is a legal battle will happen in all this? Not that, not uh, that many times, but there's always something else, you know, yep. like there's always, there's a positive thing. There's a film offer that comes in or whatever. There's always something urgent that needs to be reviewed. Unfortunately, well, and, you know, I mean, Amazon and, goes and, down. Yeah. And, 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 and in this business, even the good stuff, in some sense, is often a legal battle. It's just not an acrimonious <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, there's always a contractor to review. There's always something that comes in. So unfortunately, like I have had to conclude that I will have to do something business related every single day of a work week. And that the, one of the big things I did halfway through my career was be like, I'm not working on weekends. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like, I'm not. And if for anyone out there who's tried to communicate with me on the weekend, for example, I do not respond. Like, you know, I have cover artists I work with or whatever, and they'll send me an email on the weekend. And I'm like, I do not like, and it has a new cover and I'm excited about it. And I snooze that until Monday because I am not answer, allowed to do it. Answer her personal phone on the weekends. You have to leave a message saying, no. Hey, I want to invite you out to do something fun, not businessy tomorrow. And she'll hear the voicemail <laughs> yeah, and call it's back. True. <laughs> yeah. And that's because most of the stuff that I get on the phone is actually business related. So like, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, and that's, you know, and that's hard enough is just protecting like two days of sacred, sacred time. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's round this out. She also has a question for me. So Kitty, if you could read that. 
Um, for Dan, recently got to listen to Open Source Woman, crazy fascinating concept playing with how we value information and present ourselves in the future. Hope you get through your current wall. Are you more of a concept writer or more character driven? You have done great in both as far as I've read. I think you said in the past you sometimes do plotting, but you often just sit down and see what happens. Do you plan more for novels and then pants short stories? How long does it take for you to write a short? Um, fastest short I've ever written was uh, the... Um, coffee service, I think. Mm, yeah, okay, it was the coffee <laughs> service. Not the soup, not the soup one? Not the not soup, soup can. That was, that, was a pretty sh- that was a pretty short one. That was two days that uh, I wrote Chicken Noodle Gravity. But I think there aside from the coffee service, which was about an hour and a half right, the fastest I did was the Society of Miserable Bastards, which was about four hours. It's a six and a half thousand word story about a human sacrifice, secret society, family reunion thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's but that's just the rough, right? You still had to go back and edit it and tinker with it and all that sort of thing. Proofread, but that's it. Yeah. No, almost oh, all okay. my, all, almost all of my short stories have had it, they just don't need editing. Um, mm-hmm. Other than proofreading, because I'm terrible with typos, uh, the the dyslexia is awful. But um, but uh, and when I proofread, I'll, I'll like adjust a little bit of phrasing here and there. But the place where I tend to need editing really badly is continuity, and that comes in with the longer stories. Cause so sometimes we do a little bit of that kind of of edit when it's a short story that ties in to into a larger universe into right. a larger yeah, universe yeah. and then we have to say sense. well does this contradict anything that is happening right but um yeah. most mostly with shorts um i'll start with a premise um or it usually takes two things for me it takes a premise and an emotional flavor and i don't know how better to describe emotional flavor but if I get a premise and I get a way that I want that premise to make the audience feel, those go together and then the character emerges from that. For longer books, they tend to start either with a premise and a character or with a plot and a character. And the emotional flavor emerges as a result of the interaction of the two. Sometimes I will plot things out most of the time i mostly pants things occasionally well actually it's not quite true i think mostly what i do is i pants a section and then i'll stop and i'll have a conversation with myself what does this imply and then i'll plot out two or three possible futures for the story and then i'll start writing again and when i spot which path i'm on i'll use that i'll use the the it's not an outline. It's basically I write um, little treatments for the next two, three chapters. Here's the story. And when I spot which thread I'm on, I'll follow that as long as it seems to be making sense. And then eventually I break it. And so I have to do it again. (laughs) That's a hell of a smile. (laughs) I'm just thinking that's like a a lot of uh, panthers. And I mean, not to accuse you of being anything, Dan, but a lot of panthers I know have to do considerable retcon work and editing work. I always think the like price you pay for following 
the rabbit down the rabbit hole is a lot of editing on the other side of the, well she <laughs> she knows money. she she has a much better idea than i do how much editing i actually get and need so kitty how much what and where does it show up oh god it it honestly depends on on the story and type of story mm-hmm. um your two big series are your two big series are a um family saga futuristic political thriller mm-hmm. and a um noir detectives series and mm-hmm. um the one needs a lot of continuity within the series and the other requires um does this mystery make sense do the clues work um mm, it, yeah and with with mystery you always need that you, you you can't really get away with it you have to yet you, you whether you're planning or or writing the way that agatha christie did mm-hmm. <laughs> you, best cheat in you, the world <laughs> you have you still have to go back and make sure that your mystery makes sense right. so th- that's the two the two big things and um your other the ones that require just about no editing are the suave rob books which is that's what i was gonna guess i was gonna be like i bet and those are not those are not high concept like that's just not that's not i mean they might be concept driven but they're not high concept like i would never describe them that way and i don't think anybody else would which you don't want for that genre like the first first one's kind of high concept it was it's what happens if you try to surf a supernova um but uh (laughs) But yeah, those are all voice that series, and yeah. I yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't have to worry so much about the um, the continuity because the way that I have written them, and I didn't realize I was doing this at first, but they're written as if they're being told over a beer. Is like someone is is telling about their exploits to someone they met in a bar, and so you expect stories like that to be completely riddled with errors. And if you take them out, if you find the errors and then you take them out, it actually makes it too perfect and it breaks it. It feels less authentic. Right. So yeah, um, well that's the, that's the beauty of writing with an unreliable narrator as well. Is like you get that pleasure <laughs> but uh the experience of writing the suave rob stories once every time i go to do it i have to sit now i've got of course the audiobooks so i can just go listen to them but i have to i have to get into the voice in fact when i wrote the second book i wrote the second book all the way through and i passed it off to kitty and my other beta reader and they were both like this doesn't feel like suave rob and so i went and read it Ooh. and realized that the profanity patterns were different so mm-hmm. I went back and I counted every plonk, fuck, shit, motherfucker, everything in book one and divided them by the word length. And I came up with uh, the Suave Rob profanity formula. <laughs> and I went like a romance geek sheet. And I and I went and I applied it to book two, and that was the only change I made. And then I gave it back to them, and they were like, "Oh yeah, this is Suave Rob." <laughs> So he but, just it's funny because I have the same problem with, it was actually, with was uh, Um Oh, you overswore. Yeah, I overswore. Uh, I was trying too hard to get into the character, and it wound up coming off as mean. 
was what what was happening. Yeah. But yeah. Um, the glory of writing those is that they're so insane that the only thing you have to do once you got the voice down is say, okay, what is the absolute craziest possible thing that could happen next that won't break the story? And of course, well, that's, that's the thing Rob's going to do. So That's what he's going to do. That's the um, Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams technique. Like mm, that's, that's, right. that's yep. how they wrote those books, mm-hmm. right? That's true. But you were saying with cred rat and the language. Oh, I was just saying that like people will ask me for the second book in that series and I'll, and my like shorthand answer is I can't, I, the voice is too strong. Like I need to climb into the voice and I just, uh, you know, but it is more like what you are talking about with the suave Bob stuff, which is like, it, it is like an analytic technique where I have to like, not just find the voice that was those books, but put myself in the headspace of those mm-hmm. books. And like, it's just a different way to go and i've done it but once so presumably i can do it again again. but (laughs) but, um but it just like i just feel in my bones that i'll need to be in a specific like mindset in order to do it and that's one of the reasons i haven't gotten back into it but yeah it's that kind that you know that this the complexity of authorial voice is like we we i was listening to a podcast on where i was talking about the heroine's journey but i was also talking about author voice and i was like we all develop as an endemic author voice that is the thing that when a when a reader writes to you to say i'll read everything you mm-hmm. write that's what they're responding to is your author voice but also the pov characters and each series and each book especially when you're like you and i dan who write in multiple different genres mm-hmm. those also have their own voice which is like the bastardized version of your voice mm-hmm. and like and sometimes that's where the complexity is of trying to climb back into the second book in a series or what or or a new book in an existing universe yep. um, One of the is things- remembering the prior unis of your own authordom. Yep. One one of the things that I found most fascinating cuz as as um, you know there are plot authors there are character authors I'm really a voice author and I always have been because I think because I spent so much time as a kid in like church drama troops and um, choirs and doing uh, doing little radio shows and whatnot, have always been fascinated with accents and would listen to character actors for, for hours just to understand the way they spoke. And so I've always led with voice and I found it rather surprising almost when i got an email from a fan who had picked up the suave picked up suave rob after having been a fan of lantham and of down from 10 and the email said i didn't even realize this was you until you got to that uh, until you got to this one specific point in the book and he used this phrase and i'm like oh this is dan sawyer the guy from down from 10 <laughs> And I'm like, wow, it's because I would, you know, because I'm writing it when I slip into the character voice and do the narration thing, I'm not thinking about all the other stuff that I've written. I'm playing that character, but it's kind of like even the best character actors, you can still spot them. You know, it's still them. And uh, a lot of times it's physicality. I was just thinking Mm -hmm. about this different context is uh from as a as a dancer or or voice like but you know some actors are really good at accents and changing their voices and stuff Mm -hmm. but they still inhabit their body the same way Mm -hmm. um and i still have a certain rhythm to the way they speak even if it's in a different accent or a different voice 
or just the way they blink or hold their neck yep. or, you know, mm-hmm. arch their eyebrows mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. You're like, you're, you're, yep. you are definitely portraying a different character, but you are still Kate Blanchett or whoever. Yep. Um, and I think that's, it's like that with voice. I do believe there are some authors that change their voice so drastically between series that like from a reader perspective of uh, one of my favorite authors is Tanya Huff, but I am sublimely uninterested in her high fantasy. I've tried it several times. <laughs> can't read it. Her military sci-fi, I will read everything. I it is and but interesting. I, I swear if you blacked out her name and gave somebody a one book each from one of those series, they would they would swear it was a different author. Swear it was a different like she is nice. such a chameleon. Um, and that's very admirable, but uh, I, you know, already struggle enough climbing into, you know, something that's, that's not, it's been a while like crud rat. So I can't imagine having to code switch that hard. Mm. Like, I, I feel like she actually has different author voices depending on what genre she's writing. And I, I, I don't know if I could do that. <laughs> Well, I hope you do climb back into Crudrat someday because I want to find out how Mara does as I know what happens. What happens? <laughs> I'm going to have to. It's going to go out in the world and then people are going to demand it. Absolutely. Oh, I'm a sucker man. for peer pressure. <laughs> well, we probably ought to wrap it up there. I need to take a nap. I'm three days. Yeah, you sound sleepy. Stupid roof. And I'm like, yes. Go to sleep. I'll, I'm going to try and get some words done, and I'll talk to you next week. All right. Have an excellent weekend, my friend. You too, my dear. We'll see you on Monday. Yes, indeed. Yep. See you on right. Monday. Bye. Bye.